This morning I'll be reading from John 6, 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome. Happy Father's Day. Happy Juneteenth. If you're here for uh, out of town for the long weekend, we welcome you, especially. Uh, it's good to see you and worship with you. Uh, I am not the, uh, the pastor that is normally up here preaching. Uh, Travis and his family are packing this weekend, and they're going to move. I think they close on, on Wednesday and are moving later this week, so do pray for them. Uh, but we will be uh, continuing um, in this series, by the way. My name is Nathan Dix. I'm the RUF campus minister at Boston University. Um, we'll continue in our series, Meeting the Real Jesus. Uh, Travis has been going through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be skipping over to the Gospel of John, but we're still going to be meeting Jesus. So let me pray as we begin. Father, we are thankful that when we read Scripture, when we hear it, it preached, Lord, we encounter you by your Spirit. Lord, we just simply ask that you would illuminate your word, that you would help us to meet Jesus in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of our series, Meeting the Real Jesus, we're trying to encounter Jesus for who he is, not uh, for who we might uh, think he is, some figment of our imagination, or we, who we've heard him to be, but who he actually is. In this uh, particular episode in the life of Jesus, we meet Jesus in an extraordinary set of circumstances. He's walking on water. Uh, this is a supernatural demonstration of his power, displaying his identity as the Son of God. But you'll notice that the reaction that the disciples have immediately when they see him is one of fear. So we're going to begin by talking about fear, and then we're going to begin, uh, and then we're going to move on to why not to be afraid? Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. We want to hear the word of the Lord to us today in our fear. Do not be afraid. So again, two points. Reasons why we're afraid, and secondly, the best reason not to be afraid. Some of you who grew up watching the movie Terminator, some of your childhood fears might have been uh, reinstated when you saw in the news that uh, one of the Google employees who works with the artificial intelligence uh, determined that the AI machine was sentient. Uh, this was all over the news. He was, he was let go for unknown reasons. But uh, this kind of thing is a fear 
that we might have that it's, it's totally about the unknown. It's totally about the mystery of some new technology, AI, that we don't know what could come of it. Uh, many of us probably have fears that we deal with on a daily basis. Some of us could list a top five fear. For me, when I was a child, it was birds. You can ask me about my story with birds after the service. Chapman University published a list of top 10 fears in America for the last several years. Uh, 2020, 2021, they uh, did one list for two years. And the top 10 fears in America may not be surprising to you. Some may be surprising. Number one was corrupt government officials. Number two was people I love dying. Three, a loved one contracting the coronavirus. Four, people I love becoming seriously ill. Five, widespread spread civil unrest. Six, a pandemic or major epidemic. Seven, economic or financial collapse. Eight, cyber terrorism. Nine, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. Ten, biological warfare. We're not even, uh, we're just six months into 2022, and I think we can already imagine how this list would be rearranged. Some would be added. Economic recession might go up a few positions. Nuclear war may appear. Mass shootings. These fears are grounded in real events. They are things that can um, just shake us to the core of who we are. In centuries past or in another culture with strongly held religious beliefs, if we were to make this same survey, you might see something different. You might see something related to the supernatural or the life after death. But perhaps not surprisingly, in our secular age, no mentions of God or the afterlife show up in this list. But what has replaced this idea of God or this idea of life after death? What this list doesn't show is how fears reign in our world can sometimes be not based on a certain thing, event, or circumstance, but be a state of mind in itself. There was a provocative 2015 article in the New York Review of Books where the author Marilyn Robinson writes, contemporary America is full of fear, and fear is not a Christian habit of mind. She's a Christian herself, she points to Jesus right at the beginning of the article as the one who casts out fear, the one who has secured our souls for eternal life in him. But she says of fearfulness that it stems from quite the opposite of faith. To her, the decline of Christianity in America corresponds to a rise in the culture of fear. She quotes Leviticus 26, which is where God speaks of uh, the people of God in a state of rebellion, in a state of forgetting God, in a state of disbelief in God. Leviticus 26, 36 says this, that the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees 
from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. A driven leaf, the rustle of a leaf, shall put them to flight. And then she writes this, those who forget God, the single assurance of our safety, however that word may be defined, can be recognized in the fact that they make irrational responses to irrational fears. So fear then can take on a life of its own. It may not always be grounded in concrete realities or threats. It can overtake our reason. It can do away with our concern for human life, for kindness. And it relates to power, right? We believe that um, there's no power other than our own or that of our own party, our political party. So then the question is, what is at the root of fear? Well, it's been around for a while, people thinking about fear. A 7th century monk named John of Damascus wrote, fear is divided into six varieties, namely shrinking, shame, disgrace, consternation, panic, and anxiety. And he says this about shame. Because shame is fear arising from the anticipation of blame. And this is the highest form of the affection. When the first humans were created, it said that they were naked and unashamed. There was no fear of embarrassment in their nakedness. The marriage that they had was untainted. There was no fear of their spouse. It was an untainted relationship with God that they had. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobeying his command, suddenly a new kind of fear entered the picture. Fear of punishment. Fear of blame. Fear that God might enact justice. But as the story goes in Genesis 1 through 3, God did not punish them as they may have thought. They were cursed, banished from his physical presence in the garden, but they were not cut off. They were still his creation, his people. We'll come back to that. There's more to that story. But why are we afraid? What is at the core of that fear? We are vulnerable creatures, yes. We're mortals capable of feeling pain, perishing, but there's more than that. We are guilty. Guilty people carry around with them a sense that they deserve worse than they've received. And they carry the shame that one day they will be exposed to be the sinners they are. So any encounter with God in a state of guilt and shame is a reason for fear. So this episode in John should strike us for its absolutely remarkable and unique circumstance and unique approach of the Son of God to the disciples on this boat. Let's start in in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea 
got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Why were the disciples afraid? At first glance, it might seem that it's because of the storm, because of the rough wind, because of the sea that's starting to toss. But it says it's more than that. It's because they see Jesus walking on the water towards them. Another version of this episode says that they think it's an apparition, a ghost at first. They're afraid of what they see. Could it be an angel? Could it be that he is sent from God? The next verses tell us that Jesus did not want them to be afraid, but he wanted to join them in the boat to be with them. Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. They were afraid, and then it says they were glad. What's the reason for this radical shift in emotion? When I'm afraid and then something happens to comfort me or allay that fear, it takes a little while. (laughs) It takes some time to cool off. It takes a little while to regain your sense of confidence, of security. It says they were frightened, And then Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. And then it doesn't just say, and then they chilled out a little bit. It says, no, that they were glad. They were glad. Why were they glad? Well, this brings us to our second point, the best reason to not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. This one line from Jesus has a lot packed into it. The Greek for it is I, or ego eimi, is the identical Greek in the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, which is called the Septuagint, in Exodus 3, where God meets Moses in the burning bush. And Moses asks, God, who shall I say send me? And he says, I am who I am, Yahweh. The God who needs no name, no introduction, he is the eternal God, the creator, Lord. Now, commentators differ whether this is an explicit one of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, but certainly it hints at and points us to what Jesus is trying to show his disciples and what he is trying to show us today is that he is the Son of God. It is I. Do not be afraid. He is trying to direct their attention to his identity. There are several connections that are worth pointing out here. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, there's this prelude where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Everything that was made The Word made it with him. Jesus is the Word made flesh. In Genesis 1, it says that the Spirit hovered over the surface of the deep. Here Jesus is walking on water. In Job 9, 
5 through 8. Job speaks of God. He who removes mountains, they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. The same God who created the sea. The same God who created the wind. Here he is trampling over those same waves. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, can interact with his creation in supernatural ways. You notice that the, the excitement doesn't stop there, right? It says immediately they arrive at their destination. Now, there's debate over whether this means that at least the disciples' experience of it, because at least Jesus was with them, that they arrived at their destination, but in the normal course of time. Or it could be that immediately they were there. They were at the shore. But we do know that if they only went three or four miles into the Sea of Galilee, that the stretch across the Sea of Galilee is about six or seven. So they're likely in the smack in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which means for them to immediately arrive would take some time. There's something important to point out in that. That's not just a cool miracle. Psalm 107 says this, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Guys, Jesus is pointing out that he is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the psalmist. Psalm 89.9 says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Jesus here stills the sea. He is the Word made flesh. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. But there's more. It's not just a demonstration of His power, of His transcendent sovereign ability to manipulate creation, to be able to walk on the very sea. But it's a demonstration of His presence, of His imminence. Throughout the Old Testament, the waters symbolize chaos, the separation that divides humans from God. Jesus is crossing that chasm. I promised I would return back to the Garden of Eden. We left Adam and Eve when they were naked and not unashamed, they were naked and ashamed because of their sin, because of uh, their guilt before God. As they were being banished from the Garden of Eden, you'll read that God made for them clothes. They had made for themselves clothes that probably quickly wore out out of leaves, but God, from the skin of an animal, made them clothes. He covered their nakedness. When sin entered the world for the first time, they noticed that they were naked. 
they were shamed. And God then covered their shame. Jesus was stripped of his clothes, hung naked on a cross, scorned the shame of it, took on our shame, and crossed over the divide and rose on the third day. Jesus would lay down his life in order to cover our shame, the deepest root, the highest form of the affection of fear, so that he could be with us because he loved us. Because he wanted to, by the blood of Jesus, say, you are not guilty. There is no reason for your shame. You are covered by the blood of Jesus. See, the direction of fear is not forwards. It's backwards. When you're afraid, you don't run towards something. You retreat from it. Jesus comes toward his people. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. In another account of this story, Peter is so excited. And in Peter's fashion, he, he says, can I come too? And he jumps out of the water, right? And he's not God, so he, he, he falls. That is what Jesus is inviting here. Come to me. I am coming to you. It is I. There is no reason to be afraid. Draw near to me. If you were to go back throughout Scripture and see where an angel of the Lord, not even God, but just an angel, a messenger sent from God, comes to people, immediately they are afraid. There's something about the glory of even a messenger of the Lord that makes people afraid for their lives. When Jesus was resurrected, there was an angel, and the first words out of his mouth says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus is here. Do not be afraid. Have we heard the voice of Jesus say to us, It is I. Do not be afraid. Perfect love, the love of Jesus, casts out fear. This is the the paradox of the Christian faith, is that the fear of the Lord, seeing Jesus for who he is as the Son of God, somehow casts out fear. In Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Paradoxically. Perhaps this morning, there are things in our lives that have become so great, and we need to see the bigness, the greatness of the power of God over anything that we might be afraid of. We also need to hear that Jesus is drawing near to us wherever we might be. Maybe you are in a Not state of fear, but just in a state of apathy. Someone asks you, how are you doing spiritually? How is your soul? You wouldn't know how to put words to it. 
It's right there where Jesus is right next to you saying, it is I, do not be afraid. Wherever you are, even if you don't feel afraid, maybe you are very afraid. Jesus is saying, it is I, do not be afraid. He is with you. See, God knows your heart more deeply than you do. He knows the hidden parts, the dark parts, yet he is drawn near. He wants to be with you for you to enter his presence. Run towards him, not away. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We may find that this is the only way to begin to get to the root of the tangled and poisonous vine of our fears that seems to be creeping and encroaching and suffocating us at times. The famous hymn, Amazing Grace, is so famous that we often look over the depth of its verses. One verse uh, that I keep coming back to is this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The paradox, once again, the grace of God, the fear of the Lord, is the only true antidote to fear. It gets to the core of our existential dread of shame and punishment that maybe our culture and world has yet to put a finger on. One of the best pictures of this is the picture of the lost son, the prodigal son, who was lost but now is found in his father's arms. It's the drawing near of Jesus walking out on the water to his disciples whose fear somehow turned to gladness. Christians, if you fear fearful and timid and weak, Maybe you think the other side of that is just confidence, fortitude, and strength. Buck up. But no, it's recognizing that not I am strong, but he is strong. Jesus is with us. In Acts, the prisoners sang, jailed for their faith in Christ. They sang out of joy. This is why we can rejoice in our suffering. We can be glad. Our fear can move to joy. This is why we can take heart in our pain because God is here in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and he is powerful to make all things new. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would be near us, that you would draw near us, You give us grace, open our eyes to to see and behold your power as well as your presence, that you are with us, that in our fear, we say, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, help us in Jesus' name, amen.